You're listening to Driving Place-Based Innovation, a podcast series by Newcastle Gateshead Initiative produced in partnership with the Digital Tourism Think Tank. I'm Nick Hall, and I'll be your host for this series where we're going to be looking at how digital and technology innovation is driving transformation of Northeast England's visitor economy. Throughout the series, we'll be sitting down with organizations near and far Balancing a local perspective where we hope to shine a light on innovation in and around Newcastle with global perspectives, bringing together learnings from further afield. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be sure that you don't miss out on future episodes. For more information about the series or to get in touch, just head over to ngi.org.uk slash podcast, where you'll be able to find out more information and how to get involved. In episode six of Driving Place-Based Innovation, we look at how we can prioritize accessibility, diversity, and inclusivity in destinations by exploring different projects and initiatives, both at local and regional levels. This episode dives into the learnings from businesses and destinations, which have transformed themselves to welcome everyone appropriately, offering meaningful insights on how others are doing this. First, we'll meet Steve Dunn, director at Northern Pride, who'll be guiding us firsthand through the different projects they're developing in Newcastle and the surrounding area to ensure progress is focused on striving for excellence when it comes to equality, diversity and inclusion. In particular, Stee shares insight on those that are actively looking to create safe places that are welcoming to the LGBTQIA community, both for their employees and visitors alongside the wider community. We'll then head over to Osaka in Japan to speak with Jonathan Lucas. He is the MICE Promotion Specialist at Osaka Convention and Tourism Bureau. He'll be telling us more about the different initiatives they run in the destination to ensure everyone feels welcomed, whilst also celebrating their achievements, most notably as the hosts of the upcoming IGLTA Annual Convention. That's the Convention for the International Gay and Lesbian Travel Association. So my name's Steve Dunn, my pronouns are he, him. I'm the charity director for Northern Pride. So essentially I'm responsible for the vision, direct, direction and leadership of the charity. And Northern Pride is the largest LGBTQIA plus charity based in the Northeast. And we're more known for delivering the kind of Pride Summer Festival in, uh, in July every year. But we do work all year round we are an events-based charity and we don't necessarily shy away from that, but our events can span from a handful of people right the way up to 70,000 people at the festival weekend. And it's really important for us to stay true to our mission around protecting LGBTQIA plus rights, promoting healthy body and mind and providing safe spaces. Now tell us a little bit more about the activities that you run throughout the year and throughout the region because I think we often have this focus on pride but it's also really a lot more than that right this is about actually engagement and uh, development throughout uh, the whole year and uh, across many communities. So yeah Northern Pride are busy all year round Um, I think sometimes people have this kind of perception that we deliver the event we pack down and we go on hiatus (laughs) And whilst 
many of us would like that to be true. We stay busy all year round. Um, quite a lot of the work that we do might be in the background in terms of partnership support. So working with companies and some of our key partners to help them become more LGBTQIA plus inclusive, um, to become safer workplaces, to become um, stronger allies for the community. And then again, like I said before, we do a lot of these kind of small events. So for example, coming up in May, we have our Oosburn Family Pride. So it's a, it's a family pride event that is kind of catered towards young people. Originally, when we set it up um, in 2021, we focused on young families. So kind of providing the support for families like mine, because I'm a, uh, in a same-sex relationship with a young daughter and we want to provide space for those family units um, and what we slowly realized was actually that there was a lot of young lgbtqia plus people that were looking for this kind of support and activities so this year we've branched out to a lot more of that activities for uh, young people from 13 right the way through to 15. so really looking forward to that event and you know we help facilitate community events as well so we work with some key partners around some of the smaller events that they're doing. So for example, we support the LGBT plus Northern social group. So we've supported them in delivering their swimming sessions. So, you know, for cisgendered people, it can be very easy just to go for the, for a swim. Um, but we know for our trans and non-binary community, that can be quite challenging and quite, um, an uncomfortable time for those individuals. So it's great that we've been able to support the NSG group in setting up those sessions to deliver that service for our community. Now, I know that diversity, equity and inclusivity is something which has uh, been prioritised and become something that many organisations and individuals have taken a much stronger interest in and certainly recognise the importance of that. Tell us a little bit about the collaboration with Curious Arts and uh, what that is all about. Yeah, so we've been working with Curious Arts for a number of years now, and the relationship has just got stronger over time. It started very much just as a collaboration in terms of some events and some delivery pieces. But slowly, as that relationship got stronger, we kind of found this commonality around the um, direction that we wanted to do for the Northeast, which was to create this safe and welcoming region. And whilst Curious Arts, as they're very more... Um, in that kind of art space and deliver some fantastic pop-up theatre through to youth groups, through to community activation. We kind of found this, like I say, commonality around actually how can we come together and be stronger as partners to, to work with traditional non-LGBTQIA plus venues, institutions, businesses to make them become more of a stronger ally for the community. So when members of our community engage in those businesses or they go to their venues there or whatever that kind of interaction is it's a, a one of respect a one of understanding and empathy and a one that just creates and harnesses an experience for those individuals um because it you know, especially in the current day and age where we're seeing a lot of misinformation a lot of attacks within our community it can become quite isolating and, and there can be a fear to to go to a venue or to go into a space. So for us, it's about making sure that we can advocate these spaces as being safe, but really get into the grassroots of what does it mean to be an ally? And that's kind of where 
working with Curious Arts, we've been able to pull together our Pride Allies training. And we've we've been running this for well since November last year, but we've been working on it together for kind of a, a while beforehand. And we've been able to work with some kind of Northeast institutions. Um, and we're really excited to kind of expand on that moving forward and, and basically create more proud allies right the way across the region, not just for those based in the in the area, but especially those that are coming in on tourism or visiting from a destination perspective, but also coming here to to learn and to work. We're very, very fortunate in the Northeast to have so many amazing universities and colleges that attract international students. And we want to make sure that when they come to Newcastle and they come to the region, that they know that they're coming to a safe destination. So it sounds like a really interesting initiative that's centered around engagement. Um, and I know that uh, Proud Allies is, is also about um, creating a, a space to, uh, to share, to, um, to understand better the different perspectives. Um, and to also look at things like how the importance of inclusive language and engaging with the community. Tell me a bit about how that kind of looks in in practice. How how do people come together and how do you create that environment where there's a process of learning and understanding that happens through the Proud Allies program? So our training courses predominantly run for around about 16 people. And what we try and do is we try and run these sessions in businesses where they're all of these individuals are coming from a similar standpoint. So they kind of all work in the same place. They might have different roles, different responsibilities, but they have this kind of common view of how that business or institution is operating. And it really then en enables the conversation to be fostered around how action within those places can be taken immediately after the, the training is completed. And the training covers a, a wide range of different topics from the history of the pride movement and unfortunately some of the world impact within the LGBTQI plus community where, you know, we, we do talk about how in so many countries, it's still illegal to be part of the community. It can be still punishable by death. Um, and unfortunately that number whilst it should be decreasing is unfortunately increasing at this moment in time with certain legislations that's, ha that's happening and we're seeing a lot of it in Western countries, including the likes of America. So we do, as we talk about those kind of heavy topics, that's all about education and understanding and fostering that empathy. So while th those individuals in the room might not have lived experience, it's about them understanding what the lived experiences are as members of the community. And we create this environment through the training where it's very much this safe space for those individuals to ask the questions. Um, Myself and many of the other trainers, we're very much well equipped to be able to take those questions and to, to absorb that kind of challenge around, well, what does this mean? Why did that do that? Why is this like this? And we're equipped to be able to answer those questions, to look at education and to raise that awareness. So it, it's not always about that person always going to the same person in the business who just so happens to be a member of the community. Oh, you're part of this community. Can you answer me this question? We want to take that away from that person because that can be in minority stress. That can lead to minority stress where that person is always the go-to. So we talk a lot around um, self-education and, and the resources that we provide after the training where people can go and learn. So it's about, you know, if somebody uses a new term or a new phrase, it's about taking on that education yourself to go and learn 
the one thing that we definitely say is don't necessarily rely on Twitter for your sources of information, go and get it from reputable sources. And we provide a list of those sources after the course. And you mentioned a little bit earlier, there's been a, a lot of misinformation and misrepresentation in the media. And I think that's perhaps something that's also met with misunderstanding from uh, much of the general public. In the work that you do, do you often come across uh, resistance, uh, hesitation, or perhaps ignorance? And how do you tackle that through this training process? I, I guess it's uh, not always plain sailing, right? Uh, yeah. And it's kind of one of these positions that we find ourselves in where it's not necessarily a bad thing to have those challenges in that safe space. And like I say to you, from a kind of our training facility facilitators perspective, we're equipped to take those, those challenges on. We have the knowledge and understanding of fact. And I think sometimes when people are coming from a, a challenging perspective, whether that's because of misinformation or whether that's because they've not necessarily had exposure to language or terminology that's used, or indeed somebody with lived experience, then we talk to them from fact basis. So we look at demystifying a lot of that through this is actually the fact of that situation. Yeah, these, these are very significant um, things that I, I think, uh, as you mentioned, the lived experience is something that actually uh, is is really key to consider here. And I guess through the outreach work that you do, it's all about trying to share that, trying to allow others to get a better understanding of, of that lived experience, which is completely different to what we might have as a perception uh, if we haven't experienced that ourselves. And of course, many companies are aware both of the opportunity. If we look at tourism, uh, it's a very competitive market. And there's huge recognition in many destinations all around the world that the LGBTQIA plus community is a really, really important one to attract, to also compete on. And a lot of activity is done around Pride Month to try and really, really celebrate that. But we also had many discussions here at the Digital Tourism Think Tank about uh, making sure that this is not something that companies only do around Pride. How do you see that kind of juxtaposition of celebrating throughout the month of Pride, but also really making sure that this isn't just doing something once, doing something on a specific day, but it's actually something that's incorporated more deeply within a brand or within the experiences that a company is offering? Yeah, I think when, when we look at Pride, we look at seasonality and we look at, so for example, you know, for us in the Northeast, our event takes place in July. So we see a lot of companies and partners getting involved on the road up to the event. One of the things that we do at Northern Pride is we spend a lot of time with those companies having conversations around what are you doing 12 months of the year. Sometimes that's behind closed doors, that's working with them in their premises, that's working with them around HR policies. And I think for me, sometimes we almost need to look at that Pride season as a point of celebration around where we've got to, how have we got to this place, how have we seen improvements. But it's also an opportunity for us to really cement the conversation around we're not there yet. You know, we're not equal until everybody's equal. And whilst one part of the community might have better equal rights than another, we have to champion the voices of those that are underrepresented and, and less protected than others. And I think so for me, whilst everybody gets together in that kind of seasonality part of the, the 12 months of the year, it's almost like, yes, well done. We've got to this position, but what are you going to continue doing? 
And that's a lot of the conversations that we're having and, and Proud Allies gives us that opportunity to do that. So when we're delivering the training, it's not necessarily a parachute approach. We don't kind of like land, give some training out and then expect the world to change. It's a start of the process. It's the start of that conversation. And we need to see pride festivals and pride celebrations as that continuation of the conversation or the start of a new one. So very much when we looked at our festival last year, we put trans rights at the very front and forefront of, of everything that we were doing. Um, we created this mission of Remember, Resist, Rise Up for our festival, which we're continuing this year, because it's still very important that we're having these conversations. How do we resist oppression? And how do we stand up against those against the oppressor? How do we educate, inform to then you know change hearts and minds for future generations? So it's really an opportunity to start or have those conversations, which are really critical that can shape what we then do uh, from from that and how we go forward from that. So keeping on that same topic and thinking about tourism, what what do you think it is that tourism both needs to do and also can do to be a really strong ally of the community? Yeah, so again, we talk about this through the training, actually, because we look at the global map. And there's some diagrams that, you know, if you Google, you can find them and you can see from color charts on how safe spaces are. So for a cisgendered person, you know, they could just throw a pin in a globe and say, right, that's where we're going. And, you know, it, it can be very safe for them to go there, you know, as a cis heterosexual white person. It could be, you know, I'm just going to throw a pin in the map and that's my destination. Where for somebody who is part of the LGBTQIA plus community and more so for those with intersectionalities, it can be very difficult to do that. You know, for example, I wouldn't go to Poland because there's places within Poland that are anti-LGBT. So I think for here in the UK, it's about looking at the cities and the rural areas and how are we making that safe and inclusive and how do we use opportunities like what NGI are doing around the destination and the tourism agenda, how do we use that narrative to talk about safe spaces within our within our cities and how that's evolving? So, you know, if we go back a good few years ago, there was only very small spaces that you could go to as a member of the community. If you if you were traveling to Manchester, everybody knows that you would go to Canal Street and you know that's your safe space. Where now what we're starting to see is this really start to spread out across cities and into rural areas around actually you are safe and welcome in various different places, whether that's theatres, whether that's museums, whether that's grand parks, you should feel safe in all those places. So a lot of the things that need to be done around that is this continuation of conversation. How do I change my language to make it inclusive for visitors to come to this venue or this destination? How can I take away my kind of preconceptions of a person when I check them into a hotel? You know, if I see a same-sex parent in front of me, how do I not assume that they want twin beds? <laughs> it's, which still happens today. So whilst we might jest or use that as an example, that, that these are things that still happen. When you've got a LGBTQIA plus family unit in a, in a space, how do we not make assumptions on parental roles? How do we make, not make assumptions on young people? and assume that the way that they dress is, is a representation of their gender identity. So again, it's, it's how are we having these conversations? Because the, the wider that we have those conversations, the wider that we improve education and understanding, 
the more people will come to the region to be a part of the things that are going on. Whether, again, whether that's theatre visits, whether that's going to the arena for a music event. Um, we just had Youngblood perform at the arena and there was gender neutral toilets kind of put in place to make sure that Youngblood's fans found it a safe place to go to. So how are we adapting and evolving our venues and, and institutions to make it a safe experience for all people, regardless of what their identity is? So I guess you highlight really clearly there that the opportunity, if we think about tourism as an economy and something that can bring a lot of prosperity to the region, it's not only about celebrating diversity, but it's also about tackling and taking on those areas where we still need to address certain issues or we still need to go through uh, education and training, uh, really work hard to try and overcome the barriers that still exist. And yeah. that, that can only be achieved by also uh, understanding the lived experience of those who are impacted by that. So I think you, you've really kind of highlighted that in a, in a very... Uh, strong and convincing way. So when you look at how we might be able to think about things going forward, where do you see, what does innovation mean to you? What, where do you see the, the role to be really innovative, the opportunities yeah, to really do things very, very differently? And yeah, what, what does innovation mean to you first and foremost? It's a really interesting one because I think when you hear innovation, a lot of people navigate towards tech and kind of this digital innovation where for me innovation kind of starts at customer experience in in our sector in as a, an events-based charity and from a tourism and destination it's about that customer experience and i think it's how we become innovative from the point of entry into that customer experience to post experience so the point of entry could be a google search to find out about what's going on you know searching for lgbtq plus venues searching for pride events. What does that look like? How are we making that journey accessible? So for us at Northern Pride, we're currently going through a process right now where we're making our website more accessible. We're using a bit of software that will basically allow our website to be adapted to the user, whether that's from somebody who has got dyslexic needs, whether English is not somebody's first language, our website will be able to transform into that user's own interpretation of the website so it's easy to digest that information so they can learn about what time does it start where is it what do i need to know what can i bring what can't i bring so they can get that information so that customer experience is starting from that point of entry then when they get to the festival how are we using innovative ways to to make their experience better so how do we use different tools and softwares to to be able to help us position certain things on festival sites? How do we make that experience better? How do we provide information to people whilst they're there through that experience? So in our event last year, our website had over 30,000 hits during the live event. So if we just condense that to a moment of time, people were going to our website to get information. So we, we need to improve because why were they going to the website? If they're there in the middle of the field, what is it they're looking for? What are they searching for? And how do we be better at providing that information? How do we innovate around that? How do we put information at the, the fingertips of people? And then post-event, it's kind of like, how, what does that legacy look like? What's going to make them want to return to that experience? Or what's going to make that experience better 
So they'll come back and they'll tell their friends and, and it'll continue to grow. So I think innovation for me is about that customer experience. It's about learning from our customers. And, and I think the final part I would say for a very long answer is about agile approach. So it's not about necessarily thinking that, you know, we're just going to wave a magic wand and tomorrow the world will be amazing and innovation would have just took off and our event will be absolutely phenomenal. It's not, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen overnight. It's about these agile steps. We made changes to our website. Brilliant. Step one, what's next? Let's go after that. Then when we've delivered that, what's next after that? Let's go after that piece of change. So let's look at these steps to be able to get to that utopia, but understand and appreciate that is it is a process and it might take a while. Now let's head over to Osaka in Japan to hear from Jonathan Lucas about how Osaka Convention and Tourism Bureau is working hard to achieve success in building a welcoming and inclusive destination. My name is Jonathan. I'm with the Osaka Convention and Tourism Bureau. As you can tell from my name, I am not Japanese. I am actually originally from Virginia in the USA, but I've been working with the Bureau for close to four years now. My primary role is in uh, business events promotion, uh, making sure that Osaka is the top meeting and events destination in the world and in Asia. And then I've also been involved in LGBTQ tourism for the past couple of years as well. So Osaka is Japan's uh, second largest city and the Osaka Convention and Tourism Bureau has a really critical role to create awareness, uh, create growth in, in tourism and also just enable the city to be competitive on the international stage. And I know one of the roles that you've taken on in, in, in your position is to also drive forward diversity. So tell us a little bit more about that and what that entails. Yeah. Um, diversity is actually a key word in our tourism strategy. We use it in two different concepts. We have our three main tenets of tourism. We want Osaka to be accessible anytime, anywhere, and then for anybody. Anytime meaning we are a 24-hour destination. You can access Osaka anytime. You can also do anything at any time of the day in Osaka. Anywhere. We want to be the main hub for this region of Japan, accessible from anywhere in the world able to get to the rest of Japan from Osaka. And then of course that last tenant, anybody, we want Osaka to be accessible for anybody, regardless of nationality, sexual orientation, gender identity, age, disability. We want to make sure that anybody has a good time in Osaka. So I know that uh, with the work that you've been doing, you've had to overcome many hurdles, uh, some that perhaps don't exist everywhere. And you've also worked really hard to uh, undergo a really huge educational and training process that sits behind that. But one of the kind of flagships is the development of Visit Gay Osaka. And uh, this really stands out, especially in Japan, um, as such a comprehensive LGBT uh, initiative. Tell me a little bit more about what that entailed and uh, what are the different components? And perhaps you can tell us uh, why this is so different in, in Japan as an initiative. Yeah, to get the full story, I think I need to go all the way to the beginning just to give a little backdrop for this. But back in 2015, 2016, even before I joined, the organization was looking at ways to bring more American and European and Australian tourists to Osaka. 
traditionally Chinese and Korean tourists have been some of our uh, top visitors by country. We get more East Asian visitors than even Tokyo does, but we wanted to expand that base, you know, expand the number of people who visit us. So we started thinking, okay, how can we expand into these markets? How can we appeal to more people worldwide? And then we actually consulted a think tank. We went through a whole process. And one of the things they came up with was, hey, looking at these markets, LGBTQ tourism is, at that time, LGBT tourism is progressing pretty rapidly. This is a very well-established market. And this is something that a lot of Asia hasn't even tried to tap into. So maybe this is something you should try. And we did a little bit more of our research and we, were, uh, we realized, yeah, this is something that we want to really dive into head first. No other DML in Japan at the time had started actively in LGBTQ tourism. And so in 2018, we joined the IGLTA, the International LGBTQ Plus Travel Association. In 2019, we launched Visit Gay Osaka, which is Japan's first LGBTQ information website and information portal to be set up by a DMO, by a tourism bureau, by an organization that's publicly funded. And all the information on the website is things that we gather from our local network here, local gay bars and lesbian bars, queer spaces that people can go safely to meet up and socialize, uh, queer events, both nighttime events and daytime events, LGBTQ-friendly cafes and hotels and places and things to do. So this is all information that we want to offer up to anybody who wants to come to Osaka. And since then, since launching the website, we've done Japan's first pride campaigns for uh, in the tourism industry. We have done information seminars and training and inclusivity seminars for hotels and tourism operators and other accommodations across Osaka. And then most recently, we've gotten other destinations across Japan on board. They're not doing this just in Osaka. We're doing this as Japan. And then actually, I'm really excited to talk about this, but just recently we were announced that the IGLTA, they have an annual convention every year. They uh, just chose Osaka as the first ever Asian destination for their annual convention. There's many, many firsts in what you just described there. Tell us a little bit about why the work you're doing is is so pioneering. Uh, in 2023, I guess for many of our listeners who will be in the UK, that perhaps seems a little surprising, but um, you've had to to really work to create the space for what you're doing, right? Yeah, we really did. There was no precedent for LGBTQ tourism in Japan. You can look at examples from the United States, from Germany, from Australia. You can see that they're already doing this, but there's no such thing in Japan. And I think if you look across Asia, there may not be that precedent either. So there's a lot of firsts that we had to go into. We had to really set this up. We had to look at the data. We had to look at everything that was in a Western perspective and try to mold it and fit it into the Japanese framework that is our tourism strategy. And that was not easy. It took a lot of effort and time. We started in really doing everything wholeheartedly in 2018. And then finally in 2023, five years later, we're getting recognized for that with the uh, IGLTA's decision. So it takes a lot of work to uh, do some of these things, but I mean, it really paid off and we're really happy about it. I guess as we're talking about how innovation can can drive diversity and more inclusivity within the tourism landscape, I guess, would it be correct to say that for you, 
innovation is actually about pushing the boundaries, putting in place, uh, challenging people to to think outside of their day-to-day comfort zone and and to embrace or explore something new. Absolutely. And that I mean that's what innovation is. But the challenge is, and you might be aware of this, Japan is not a society that likes to push the boundaries. Japan very much likes to stay within the lines, very much likes to not rock the boat. It likes to stick with precedent because it's safe. Uh, Japan is a very low-risk society. So doing anything that's kind of risky makes it less likely that it's going to be pushed forward, makes it less likely that you're going to get people on board. So it took a little time for people to say, hey, this is something that's worth it. This is something that you know, you should invest in with us, that you should spend your time with us doing because it's going to have a huge payoff. And of course, uh, being risk averse, as you just pointed out, is, is really key to innovation. So I guess overcoming sometimes cultural barriers can can be one of the challenges that maybe exists in a macro environment like an entire society, but also in those micro environments, such as within an organization. And I know that when you've been putting in place these LGBTQ plus initiatives, one of the key things for you has been to not just focus them on a specific month or a specific period, not just making it a campaign that kind of starts and stops, but actually doing this all year. Tell us a little bit more about the thinking there. Well, I like to think of our LGBTQ initiatives in two different ways. We both talk the talk and we walk the walk, meaning we do the marketing behind it. We say that we're a diverse destination. We try to include same-sex couples and transgender people in our marketing. Well, we're trying to include transgender people in our marketing. So the best part is just same-sex couples. So that's something that we're trying to engage in more now. So we do that. We do that marketing. And that's what Pride Month essentially becomes. That's a huge opportunity for not just us, of course, but for private companies and governments and organizations around the world to say we are LGBTQ friendly. We do support diversity and then all are welcome here. But then on the other side of that, you do have to do the walk. You have to walk the walk. You have to make sure in the case of a destination, you have to make sure that you are a welcoming destination. You have to make sure that not just your organization, but all the organizations that make up your destination are also welcoming. And you can't just do that in one month. That is a full-time job year round. So at the Osaka Convention of Tourism Bureau, we are making sure that hotels have inclusivity training. We are conducting seminars. We are trying to implement our own friendly package system so that if an operator signs up, we'll help them put on seminars. We'll do ministry shopper evaluations and we will promote them as a friendly destination, a friendly hotel or a friendly restaurant or a friendly tourism operator. We're doing this year round. We're trying to make Osaka a very welcoming destination. So there's two sides to that. We walk the walk, but then of course the Pride Month, we're talking the talk as well. I think one of the things that really stands out for me is is the em- emphasis and importance you've put on going so much further than the message, um, so much deeper than just the the messaging, the branding, the opportunity. As you've pointed out, this is a huge market as well, if we look at it on economic terms. But you've also, as you mentioned, they've gone through a lot of development and training uh, processes with the industry. And you've also been quite innovative as well at a product level, product and experiences. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, we are 
a very numbers-based organization. We have to bring people in. We have to get numbers. So in order to do that, we want to offer up specific tours and packages, things that people can actually purchase and we can record. Oh, look, you know, we've got this number of people who are interested in our diversity offerings. So one of the very first things that we did in tour packages is we've offered a series of drag queen experiences. We launched those at the end of 2021. So unfortunately, they have not really taken off because our timing was not great with COVID. So no one picked up on those in 2021, but 2022 saw a little bit of a different. But yeah, we offer drag queen tours and experiences. So you can go game bar hopping with a drag queen. You can go on a river cruise with a drag queen. You can have a dinner party with the drag queen, you know, experience Japan tourism and Osaka tourism with a local drag queen. And this drag queen is a local Japanese queen who speaks English. So you can experience what it's like to, you know, interact with an LGBTQ local and really get to experience local Osaka from that perspective. So these are the kind of packages that we're offering. But especially this year, our newest challenges. We want to expand on that, not just drag queens, but how can we make Osaka more appealing for LGBTQ travelers as a whole? I think it's really exciting to see you embracing that and also, I guess, um, persevering with that, even if maybe the success of it hasn't, uh, hasn't followed in the first instance. The determination to keep going with that and not to just give up on that has been really key. What is the... What is the, how receptive has the actual industry been around some of these initiatives? I guess for many of them, this is a, a big learning curve and um, perhaps uh, have they had a chance to experience some of these tours, for example? Well, so if we're going on the rest of the tours and industry, they've been, of course, very receptive. When you show them the numbers, you know, LGBTQ travelers spend this much more on average as compared to regular travelers, they instantly see the value. So it's very easy to get other people in the tourism industry involved, other hotels, other tourism operators, other accommodations, things like that. They understand the value. Where it gets a little bit more difficult is when you interact with organizations who are not exactly tied to the tourism industry. So for example, uh, traditional theater, we've wanted to get Kabuki or some other things like that involved. And when we talk to those organizations, they're a little hesitant. This isn't something that they're used to. When you hear LGBTQ, their first thought is, oh, we're going to talk about, you know, social rights and those kinds of things, which of course is not exactly what we're about. So we have faced a little bit of hesitation from organization, never pushed back, but definitely hesitation. And that's something that we're trying to overcome as well. It just takes a little bit of time. I guess the sensitivity with which you've been able to approach what you do and try to keep almost the politics away from that, as you mentioned, some of that hesitation, you know, perhaps helping and, and working with others that come from outside of the tourism sector who don't necessarily have the black and white economic argument put in front of them as plain as day, perhaps applying empathy and, and understanding and education to try and uh, gradually uh, bring them in and um, help them to understand and to see the potential value as well that it can bring to, to their offering. Uh, well, it's been really great hearing about this, um, this journey you've been on, Jonathan. It's been a number of years now that you've been working really hard to, to put in place uh, this program within Osaka Tourism. Uh, tell us a little bit about the overall competitive positioning of Osaka and where this LGBTQ plus part fits into that competitive positioning. Yeah, 
Just one thing I do want to add, though. Yeah, I have been involved in this for a couple of years, but it really is a team effort. I This would not be possible without our internal team, the people. We all work on this together. We've got several people who are really dedicated to this. It's hard to do this as our only position. We all do so many different projects. But even though, you know, we're at 120% of our capacity, everyone's really dedicated to this. So it's thanks to them that we're getting this done. But as for our competitiveness overall, yeah, this has put Osaka very significantly on the map. Um, we're the first destination to do this, the first destination to do that. Um, not just LGBTQ, but we're the first to do a lot of other things. Like something new that we're doing is pet tourism. You know, make Osaka very friendly and easily accessible for people with pets. So we do all these things. And being Osaka first, Osaka first really puts us on the map. Media, you know, catch wind of us from around the world. And so a lot of people become more interested in us simply because, you know, we're being innovated, simply because we are the first to do these kinds of things. And then, like I mentioned earlier, we are now the first Asian destination to host an IGLTA global convention. So this is something that we're really looking forward to when it actually comes around uh, next fall. I guess you really speak to the layers and nuances that exist not only in the destination, but also in the the markets and the visitors to the destinations. And when you speak about the different communities that you can really speak to with different, uh, I guess, unique competitive positionings, this is something really exciting. And I think, you know, perhaps we should we should feel more comfortable taking on a particular opportunity and, and exploring it to far greater depth than we sometimes do at a surface level. And I think as you've, as you've done, really investing in, in, those, um, in the development of that, not only the campaign or the message, but also helping the industry to move the product offering forward. You've been listening to Place-Based Innovation with myself, Nick Hall. The producer of this series is Ana Balaga Sanchez, Production and editing by Dan Hopkins. The series is part of the Hospitality Innovation Tourism Supply Program, which supports businesses in Northumberland, Newcastle, and North Tyneside to meet challenges through innovation. The program is funded by North of Tyne Combined Authority and delivered by Newcastle Gateshead Initiative, Food and Drink Northeast, and NBSL. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get notified of future episodes. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, why not take a moment to leave a review? Thanks, and we'll see you next time.